This is an ABC podcast. Just a heads up, this episode has a little bit of salty language, so you might want to cover up younger ears. I remember actually getting interviewed when I was about 14 and someone said to me, so what, what do you want? You know, you want to be a pro surfer? Do you want the money or the fame? What is it that you want? And I just said, I want the whole lot. I'd like to everyone a bit about my history of surfing. I started when I was 14 years old and I used to carry my esky down to the beach, my umbrella, you know, my surfboard and everything I could carry on my skateboard and go down to the beach and surf all day long and... Pauline Mensah started surfing as a teenager in the mid-80s. And back then, there was a handful of professional female surfers in Australia. For Pauline, these women were like a beacon, half a decade ahead of her, showing her what might be possible. One of them was Jodie Cooper. I remember looking in some surfing magazines and seeing Pam Burridge and Jodie Cooper and thinking, you know, I want to be just like them. Jodie Cooper was one of my idols. Surf all these great waves. You know, there was quite a few pictures around of Jodie surfing big waves. The photos I saw, she had makeup on. People just thought she was absolutely gorgeous. And then um, there was always kind of this sentence in the background, bummer she's gay, though. Ladies and gentlemen, your top 16 women. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. At beaches around Australia, women paddle out on their surfboards every day, and it's so common it barely rates a mention. But there was a time when even world-class female surfers had to fight for their place in that lineup. Today, a story of two Australian champions you might never have heard of, Pauline Mensah and her surfing idol Jodie Cooper, and how they took on a surf culture that tried to shut them out together. Our reporter, Belinda Lopez, starts this story at Sydney's Bondi Beach. And, Belle, Bondi was a really different place back then, wasn't it? Yeah, Elizabeth, it's kind of hard to imagine Bondi as anything other than this personal trainer-filled, Instagrammable paradise. But it used to be much poorer and rougher. And it was that Bondi that Pauline grew up in with her family. So I remember I was only five years of age and my brothers were eight, my grandfather was a a milk truck driver and he got hit and killed while he was doing the milk run and then not long after my father was killed in the taxi so we never did find out why or who or or what happened but um yeah I just remember mum crying just you know thinking now she's got to bring up all these kids on her own. My mum was always doing it tough and so her way of us getting pocket money was the street clean-up and she'd make me and my brothers run down the street on either side of the road and just collect anything we can in the street clean-up and then we'd bring it back and sell it in a, a garage sale. And that was also how I started my amateur surfing career. The street clean-ups paid for Pauline to travel to amateur surfing comps in Australia and overseas while she trained at Bondi. But there were very few women in the waves. It was pretty horrific growing up in Bondi with some of the guys. You know, I guess it's like anything back in the 80s. It it was really like, it was a man's place out there. Like, they just didn't want women out there. And 
the few of them let you know it. One of the local crew there, I caught a wave and he dropped in on me and I yelled at him just saying, hey, what are you doing dropping in on me? And then he just started chasing me and kicked me in the stomach and punched me. And then um, he'd already actually been in trouble with the police quite a bit and they found out or heard about it and said, do you want to press charges? And I, I didn't bother because I thought it would just never ending escalate. But yeah, that was the kind of stuff that you put up with. Bondo is a tough town, you know, and there was a lot of tough guys in the, in the water that surfed. By this time, Jodie Cooper was already one of Australia's top surfers and she'd moved over to Sydney from Western Australia. Pauline had been reading about her for years in surf magazines, but now she got to actually see her surfing in Bondi, where Jodie was living with her girlfriend. I think when I first met Pauline, uh, I was in Bondi and she was obviously a little grommet and she probably had at some point probably thought, oh, wow, that's Jodie Cooper maybe, you know, because obviously I'm a few years older than her and I'm... And then, you know, she'd obviously heard that I was gay. So I think she was probably quite terrified of me. I think she thought I was some gay lord or some monster that was going to sneak around the corner from a dark alleyway and drag her into that alley or something. You know, I think there was a lot of fear. And I think Pauline and a lot a few of the young girls sort of had that kind of mentality because they just weren't educated. It was just a bit of ignorance, I suppose. She was probably, I don't know how old, I think she might have been 16 or but she looked about 12 and she just looked like this little freckly-faced grommet boy. And I don't mean that in a negative, but just like a little uh, Jack Russell, you know what I mean? How they just, they got heaps of personality and they're really feisty and they're just uh, quite strong little creatures. But, you know, and, and look, not just that, she was so talented and you could see at a very young age that she was going to take the sport of surfing to another level. It was sort of surreal when you got to meet all these pro surfers, you know, you look at a few pictures and the next thing you know, you're, you're one of the women on tour. So it was a really strange transition. And then that's when I became friends with Jodie and quite a lot of the other girls. There was about 10 of us all staying on a lounge room floor in this lady's house while we watched all the, the top guys staying in nice hotels right on the beach. Pauline worked out pretty quickly that the competition seemed split between the real surfers and the women. The prize money for female surfers was a fraction of the men's, and in the international surf tournaments, they were like an afterthought, a fill-in-the-blanks between the guys' events and the bikini competition. As soon as the contest would start in the mornings, they would assess the waves, and if it was beautiful, clean conditions, the men were always on. So if it got windy or the tide was too high, you know, just crappy conditions, I go, okay, now put the women on. They'll even saying, okay, let's just do two heats of the women and then the tide will get better. And then if it got windy again, then they'd put the women again. So we're just always getting the crap waves. I was so sick of it. And I remember we were in South Africa and I just said, let's just not paddle out. You know, we've got to make a stand and you know, you're relying on these other girls also to make a stand. So we're worried that one of them was going to paddle out. And then if that person paddles out, then of course they're going to get through the heat and you all lose for not paddling out. And then we just started saying, well, we're just pretty much not going to put up with it anymore. It's just, you know, we're not going to go out in that shit. We're not going to go out in that shit. And we're just not going to go out in it. So we're not going to go out. And to make sure they didn't have to go out in shit waves, the women got organised they appointed a representative who spoke on behalf of the group so no one would lose for not paddling out. 
But still, Pauline says, for basically her whole career, the women were expected to surf in worse conditions than the men. There was one place, though, where bad waves were rarely a problem. Hawaii. And especially at one break, called Sunset. And it's a really powerful, big, you know, wave that breaks in a lot of ocean. And it's kind of like, it's like about eight football fields big. It's kind of like you're like a little matchstick in the water and, you know, that's how break, breakable your, your bones are. If you can conquer those sorts of waves in Hawaii and do well, you do kind of gather reputation from the guys because they would give you credit if you could ride big waves. And I think at that stage of my career, I'd, I'd sort of got to the point where I'd sort of started doing really well in Hawaii on a consistent basis. Jody had grown up surfing bigger waves in Western Australia. And now it was 1992 and both she and Pauline were competing for international titles at Sunset. So watching Jody surf Sunset is absolutely awesome. I remember Sia paddle out like, you know, just... I'm sure she was scared, but she doesn't show it and just get this really big set. Sunset Barrel's got a really distinctive sound to it because it's such a big barrel and there's so much water drawing up the, the face of the wave. For me, it's got a real roaring sound, but it's really weird because it's like time slows down and, and you've got so much adrenaline pumping through your body and you, all you want to do is, in one, in one sense in your mind, you're thinking, holy, holy, can I swear, holy fuck, uh, you know, uh, you know, this is so amazing and you're so excited. But then again, you've got this other flash thought in your mind, which is, holy shit, you know, like I could die here or either it's, you know, ecstasy kind of thing or it's absolute sheer fear. Jody won two major titles in Hawaii. Victory went to Jody Cooper from Albany. It was her second victory in Hawaii this year. Always to win both of them was just probably like one of the highlights of my life, I'd say. Jody had reached the peak of her career. But the seed of an idea planted in her head, one that kept niggling at her. Maybe she should just quit. Look, you know, to be honest, I still had so much good surfing in me. Like, I know my surfing improved for another 10, 12 years. And that's honest. Like, your surfing gets better. I just found the whole the sport itself was really misogynist. It was really um, closed-minded. So that, it had a lot to do with that. It had a lot to do with also the struggle for the sponsorship. Like, I was always lucky. I had really good sponsorship. And then at the end, you know, it was harder to get the sponsorship and stuff like that. And I know that the sponsors, when they found out that I was gay, I heard it firsthand from someone that they weren't really happy about it. And they, they need to, needed to cull some people. And so they decided that I probably would be the first on the chopping block. No one really came out because, you know, it was like most sports, even in the 80s and 90s, it was very difficult for a female, well, I suppose any gay person really, uh, to be openly gay and um, be promotable. I just was felt strong enough to do it because I, I just thought it was a moral injustice and I just couldn't walk the planet knowing that I hadn't done my bit to make a difference. Jodie introduced me to going to Mardi Gras and so I was just around 
thousands and thousands of gay people, I'm just like, wow, like this is amazing and you can just be yourself. And it was actually quite a funny story because I was dating this guy and I was laying there with him and it just kind of hit me like that. I went, oh, it would be so nice if this guy was a girl. And then I sort of stopped myself and went, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> so with Jodie, I just remember telling her, you know, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm gay. And then her and her girlfriend just absolutely started cracking up laughing, going, you only just realise now. And they're like, we've known for a long time. We've just been watching it and, you know, waiting for the day kind of thing, you know, like when you were ready to sort of admit it, you know. So I came out to Jodie and that was pretty easy. And the reason I didn't come out to anybody else with the rest of the tour, it was like, I kind of felt like it was almost a life or death situation. Around the time I was coming out, there was a lot of gay bashings in Sydney. You know, one of the girl surfers, she got attacked because she was holding her girlfriend's hand. She just walked down the street. I think she got a, a punctured lung. From that day on, I was actually really scared of coming out and showing my affection in public because of what happened to her. I'd get interviewed and stuff like that, and people would always say, you know, who is this girl travelling with you? And I'm like, oh, that's my coach. Like, she's making sure that I do all right because, um, you know, I need to stay fit and stuff. And unfortunately, it was my girlfriend, and I had to keep that quiet. I believe because of the way the tour was, and also I thought if I come out that I'm gay, there's no way I'd ever get a sponsor, especially after hearing what happened to Jodie. It was a year later, 1993. Jodie was going to give the world title in Hawaii one last shot. And Pauline was also determined to compete. To get a sponsor, she figured she had to win big, world champion big. It would mean an end to the financial insecurity that had shadowed her surfing career. Because with no support, Pauline was still raising money to get to competitions, like she had when she was a kid. So I decided to have a raffle. I went around to all the shops and they were all pretty amazing. I think I got 300 prizes. I had to go and sell all the tickets myself, basically. So it was a really hard slog way of earning money. But that's basically how I got enough money to go to Hawaii. And then the stress of, um, you know, just going for a world title and not having the money, my arthritis came back with a vengeance. So when I was 10 years old is the first time I started to think something's wrong with me because I'd wake up every morning with really sore wrists and knees and they'd be really swollen. And um, so my mum took me to the doctors and I got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And basically since I was 10, I've suffered really badly, but no one really saw just how much I suffered. And also before I would compete, I'd try not to show anybody On top of everything else, Pauline's entire surfing career, as she dominated the amateur competition, as she travelled around the world as a professional surfer for years, it had all happened while her body was at war with her. So basically every muscle hurts and then you've got that really sensitive pain, like if your fingers were jammed in a door, if you barely touch them, like sprained ankles, just barely touch it, it really hurts. That's what your whole body feels like. And now in Hawaii, Pauline's arthritis was the worst it had ever been. She was staying with Jody while they were preparing to compete. 
but Pauline couldn't even get out of bed. Yeah, I just remember it being crazy, like Jodie's going, come surfing, come surfing. I'm like, you don't get it. Like, I can barely walk, I can't surf. And she's like, oh, come on, Paul, stop being so scared. I go, I, I can't move, Jodie, like I'm really in a bad way. You know, to be honest, I think a lot of us were quite, we really didn't have a true understanding for how hard it was for her. I can only imagine how much pain she must have been in because I know how much of a grommet that she is and how much of a, you know, competitor and how competitive, even as a friendship, you know, one-on-one in the water she is. I'm the most determined bull you've ever seen. Like, I just, nothing will ever stop me. And when it even went through my head to not go, I just sort of couldn't believe I was thinking like that. But I'm like, oh, my God, I can't even get out of bed. I couldn't use my wrists at all. And then I'm thinking, okay, if I can't use my wrist to even get out of bed, how am I going to use my wrist to get up on a surfboard? And I'm just like, forget it. Like, I'm just in agony. And then it got really close to the time the contest is about to start and I'm really freaking out, thinking, you know, how am I going to go for a world title if this has happened? The occasion of spotting outside a nice-looking set of waves that would get this... 45 minutes, woman's final underway. So as I'm walking down the beach, sunset's really soft sand. And so it's pretty hard to walk on that sand. And then you've got this quite a dumping shore break. But even walking down to the water's edge, basically my one leg was crossing over the other leg and I was twisting around halfway. And then even paddling out, I could barely, you know, I was just struggling with everything. The wave is like standing at the bottom of a mountain and there's a big ledge of snow and that is just about to break. By the time that wave's finished wiping you out and you come up, there's the next wave there. So you do have a chance of drowning. For our Pam's wipeout. A for effort though. Okay, time call is now three minutes and 45 seconds. You know, it's coming down to two minutes left, one minute left, and then I'm thinking, okay, right, now get ready, get ready. There's a good looking wave, strong offshore. Is anybody in position? Okay, now like it's game on. I don't think I could hear the wave, I could just hear my heart pounding. You know, you hear stories of them lifting cars off kids because of the adrenaline. I totally believe it because that's what happened to me. Again, like I was still really hurting, but as soon as that hooter started, I was like, absolutely surfed like there was nothing wrong. She is a daredevil, what a woman. That's a world championship forum there for you folks. That's the courage of Paulie Three, two, one. And that's why it was really funny when my feet touched the sand again and went up the beach. Here I am hobbling along. I'm just saying to myself while I'm walking up the beach, how did I just do that? I look, when Pauline won, I just remember how ecstatic we all were, you know. I mean, to have come from such, you know, hardships, illnesses and, you know, the, the financial side of it, and all of that, and to, to finally win a world title and just deservedly so. You know, as, as jealous as you are, because you always are, I have to be honest, you're dead set, so jealous. You're just like going, oh, 
you know, why wasn't that me? Like, oh, no, God, that hurts. But at the same time, of course, you're like absolutely ecstatic. Well, there's one thing I really remember and it's such a nice memory is I was on the beach and Jodie was one of the first people to come over and congratulate me and someone put a lay over my head of um, these little white flowers, I can't remember what it's called, but oh, jasmine. Well, it's a similar smell to jasmine. Now this never-ending smell of jasmine reminds me of when I won the world title every single time I smell it. And so that's, that's, to me, way more of a memory than the trophy. Sweeping view of the women's professional service, the beauty on stage. On the actual presentation night, which was a few days later, my trophy was already broken. <laughs> the bottom was coming off from the top. But even with a broken trophy, Pauline thought she'd made it. She was the best female surfer in the world. And after years of scraping money together just to get from competition to competition, everything would be different. So then I thought, now I'm world champion, surely I'll get a sponsor easy. And she waited for the offers to pour in. And then she heard from her coach, her real coach, not her girlfriend. He said, oh, I have to tell you this off record, but... One of the major surf brands doesn't want to sponsor you because you don't have the look they want. I'm a freckled-faced, black-haired woman, whereas all these other girls are, you know, tall, blonde-haired, blue eyes. And also the surf industry was so homophobic. I never had any support, like, most of my career, really. I probably only was sponsored for four or five years with financially, and the only company that sponsored me at the time didn't know about it. They didn't know I was gay. That year at Sunset, Jody had a win too. She took out the final event against the top female surfers, including Pauline. Pauline says she'd already won the world title, so she let Jody have the good waves. Pauline stood on the podium next to Jody, who raised the trophy above her head. And the MC started interviewing Jody. And I understand this might be possibly. Your swan song, what do you think? Well, I'm definitely um, not going to be doing the tour next year, but four is my lucky number. So and later, the MC asked her, what are you going to do now? And Jody said, I'm just going to grow mung beans in the bush. Pauls and I, you know, have always talked about, you know, when we were younger days, always saying, you know, oh, yeah, we'll put our money together and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll buy something or we'll buy a farm and we'll grow our own veggies and, you know... We just go surfing. But, you know, I just like to disappear. And I think that's kind of what I was saying. I just want to disappear somewhere and, you know, yeah, grow mung beans pretty much and just, you know, just go into the country somewhere and just become a Joe Bloat. Pulsey's just waddled on in. She's probably been out walking the dog or something like that. She's probably been out there doing a few salutes of the suns and um, she's waddled back in. And unfortunately, we live pretty close together now. We, she lives um, probably about five k's away from me, just up the road. I'm on the phone to Jody and Pauline. Where, where do you want her? Do you want They're her both enjoying the their post-surfing retirement on the north coast and of New South Wales. Both at the same time. Does Pauline want to take a seat and we can, we can all chat together? We, we just need to check my levels first, one second. Just um, say hello, my name is... Hi, my name is Jodie Cooper, here at Pauline's house. Yep, that's good. Yep, cool. All right, we're ready. And how did that dream of uh, getting a farm together go? 
Yeah, it didn't happen. <laughs> we live close enough, though. I was, like, always jealous of her that she made the move up to Byron Bay before I did. And uh, my partner was a real Sydneyite at the time and I just couldn't get them to move and Pauline was getting all the good ways up here and I was, like, frothing to get up here and drop in on her. <laughs> and she still does when I get out there. <laughs> Can you both describe, because it was pretty recently that it was decided that the women would have an equal prize pool to the men, you know, from a tournament. Surfing has faced criticism in the past for issues with gender equality. Can you remember what you both felt when you found out that was going to happen? I think it was in 2019. 2019 is the first year the World Surfing League is offering equal prize money for men and women. Yeah, that was really, really crazy day. I was driving in my car and I heard it on the radio. And I absolutely bawled my eyes out and I couldn't stop. Yeah, I was crying for ages and then I kept seeing equal prize money and then every single time I saw it, I couldn't stop crying. I was just so happy. Yeah, I was pretty blown away and I just thought I'd never see that day, to be honest. But, um, yeah, I was pretty emotional, pretty excited for the girls. Then I started getting the calculator out and working out how much money I would have made back in the day. And the good thing is... Not only has it changed money-wise, I'd seen Stephanie Gilmore and she said to me only the couple of years before, oh, Pauls, you won't believe it. Now we get thrown out in the good waves and if anything, we get favoured more than the guys. That's beautiful. Would you both say it was worth it, doing what you did? Was it worth it? Oh, definitely. You better believe it. That's that's not even, you can't even question that. It was worth it. If we could press rewind, I'd go back and do it again. People say we had struggles, but it was still a wonderful life. So I went and put a whole lot of jasmine plants around my yard just to remind me of when I won the world title. So at flowering time of the year, no matter what part of the garden I walk around, I can smell it. That's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. That's a good idea. That story was reported by the wonderful Belinda Lopez. It was inspired by our team getting a sneak peek of a really great locally made documentary feature film. It's called Girls Can't Surf and it features the two heroes from this episode plus other incredible stories about female surfers fighting for recognition and big waves. Look out for Girls Can't Surf in a cinema near you from March 11. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. We'd love you to subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. It helps new people find the show. If there's a story that you want us to hear, please email us or you can send us a voice memo. You can get in touch at dayslikethese at abc.net.au. On the next episode of Days Like These, unpacking one of the world's rarest medical conditions. The key symptom, the internal workings of your body give off a cacophony of sound in your own head. I can hear blood pumping and that sounds like this. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Kulas. Our lead reporter is Pat Abud. And our season two reporting team includes Alex Lowback, Belinda Lopez, James Viver and Sam Wicks. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick and our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. This episode was engineered by Simon Branthwaite. 
And the supervising producer is Miyuki Jokiranda. Thank you, Miyuki. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. And our theme song is Yeah Now by The Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. This is an ABC podcast. Testing. One, two, three. Hello, I'm Andy Matthews. And I'm Alistair Tremblay-Birchall. And we believe science is the most powerful and noble of human endeavours, a valiant attempt to make sense of a sometimes inscrutable universe. It's a complicated and thankless task for scientists that can only be made worse by being put in a room with four comedians and having their field of study routinely mocked and misunderstood for half an hour. Which is why it brings us no joy to announce that that's exactly what we've done with The Pop Test. Every episode, we've chosen a field, attempted to summarise its entire history in six trivia questions, and then asked our guests to apply their newfound knowledge to answer some of the big mysteries. What is love? Why do we die? What lighting system is most appropriate for a soccer match with snakes? And then we finish with a speed round, but because it's taking us in a particular direction, we call it a velocity round. We hope that you enjoy listening to the show as much as we enjoyed writing this brief introduction to it. Out now on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. 